tell you, it was so neat this morning to have uh, Dr. Muneer and his wife Sharon here, and then uh, Jeff Dixon, our missionary to China, was here at the early service, and they stayed for Sunday school, and I realized it's probably the first time, and it may not ever happen again, that two um, men of God that we support, that God has called to in different parts of the world, were here at our church at the very same time. And uh, it just um, reminded me that how much so just brought home the fact that what we do here means so much more than just what happens within these church walls. And what God does here has ramifications that goes outside these walls that it's bigger than Palestine, it's bigger than Anderson County, that it goes all the way over to Ramallah, Israel, and all the way over to Sinjin, China. And it is just amazing. So I hope that you would get a, a, a more of a, a global perspective on what God is able to do with you. That the influence that you have via His Spirit goes so far, further than you could ever imagine. So that was just, just so neat today. Well, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12 once again. Today we're in verse 1 one more time before we finally get into verse 2. And uh, I want us to do something a little different this morning when we read this. We're only going to read verse 1, but when we stand together and read it, I want us to read this together out loud. Because we've been going over this a few times now, and I want this to really sink in. So if you don't have a New American Standard, I would encourage you to follow along on the screens so we can all be reading the same thing. So let's stand together and read Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Let's pray. God, there is power in your word. And God, when your people declare it like that, Lord, things happen around us. Lord, if we could just see what is going on in the spirit realm right now as your people just verbally declare your word, God, I don't think we would want to stop declaring it. And so, Lord, I pray that your spirit will just, um, God, take these truths this morning and just transform us, God. Jesus, I pray that we're able to see you in ways that we may never have before. God, let your will be done in this time together. In Jesus' name, amen. That was powerful, man. That sounded good. (laughs) You know, I was back there during the baptism, and uh, during that last song, I could hear the congregation singing out, and it was just, it's powerful when, when God's people just... Paul talks about uh, one church I can't remember he wrote, wrote to, and he's talking about the sound that you are making is going out far and wide. Man, God has called us to make a sound, make the sound of the gospel, whether it's through song, whether it's through declaring the truths of his word. So I encourage you to make that sound as loud as you can at every opportunity. For the last three weeks, we've been kind of camping out on this big transition in the book of Romans where Paul turns from doctrine to application. For the first 11 chapters, he's been talking about sin and, and God and salvation. And then chapters 12 through 16 will be about what we are to do with all that, with everything, all these truths that he has laid out in the first 11 chapters. But before Paul tells us how... Uh, a, a Christian life should be lived, 
He wants to be sure that we understand that Christian living, first and foremost, is an act of worship to God. And if we do the things that Paul says for us to do in the next five chapters from anything other than a heart of worship, then we can't really say that we are living the Christian life. There is a big difference between living the Christian life and going through the motions of Christianity. And what separates those two things is a heart of worship. Now to the Jews living in Rome, whom Paul was writing this letter to, this had to be somewhat of a foreign concept. Because the life of a Jew under the Old Covenant system had a lot to do with, with duty and obligation uh, rather than so much so being from worship. I mean, the sacrifices that were offered in the temple and the obedience of the law, the observance of all the ritual ceremonies and ordinances were all done because these were the things that God required in order for them to remain in good standing with him. And so they did these things out of a sense of duty and obligation, not just their duty to God, but also their duty to their, their nation, their race, because doing these things is what separated them from everyone else. And I can just imagine that living that way, there had to be this, this constantly nagging thought of, I wonder if I have done enough. If obedience to the law was a requirement for every time I sinned, or, or obedience to the law was a requirement and there were times that I did sin, there were times where I wasn't able to live up fully to the law, then my only hope is that I had obeyed enough of it. If offering sacrifice for my sin was required, well, what if there were some sins that, that, that I, I, didn't, I didn't cover? What if there was something that I had forgotten about, a sin that I wasn't aware of, or one that I had forgotten about and so there had to be this ever-present thought of what if I haven't done enough I'm telling you right now this is a miserable way to live and I know because this is exactly the way that I used to live in my relationship with God and it's the exact same way I believe many people are living today it's just hoping that the good things that they did in life will outweigh the bad in the end, but not really ever being completely sure. Everything I used to do for God, I did out of a, a sense of duty and obligation, thinking I have to do this in order for God to like me, in order to go to heaven. Gosh, I hope I'm doing enough. And folks, that is not the abundant life that Jesus said that he came to give us. The gospel is not obey the law as much as you can, and in the parts that you aren't able to obey, Jesus is there to cover that for you. The gospel is that Jesus met all the requirements fully. He obeyed the whole law perfectly. He was the full and final sacrifice. He is the substance to all the shadows of the law and the ordinances and rules, rituals and ceremonies were pointing to. And so because of what Jesus has done, we no longer have to wonder if what we are doing is going to be enough. We can now trust the fact that Jesus did do enough on our behalf. Jesus is enough.
We're not getting in because of us. We're getting in because of Jesus. And what that means then is that because of Jesus, we can now live from an attitude of worship instead of just always from a sense of obligation and duty. Church, God is not after our begrudging obedience. He's after our worship. And living a life of worship to God, living, living your, your life as worship, just naturally results in obedience to his word. Two weeks ago, one of the main points of the message was that the Christian life without the gospel is nothing but dead religion. Believing and trusting the gospel, who Jesus is, what he has done, who you are in him, this produces worship in us from our heart. And so we can also say then that Christian action apart from worship is also dead religion. And so the question I believe we, we need to ask ourselves from time to time is, why are you doing the things that you do? Is it because you feel obligated to do it, like you have to, like this is your duty as a Christian, or do you do it as a response to the good news, as an act of worship? Because if we are doing anything for God just out of this rote sense of duty and obligation, we're still living under this old covenant mindset. And another way of asking the question would be, are you doing it so that you will look good to God or are you doing it because God looks so good to you? That's the difference between living under the law and living with the gospel. This is a point that Paul is making at the beginning of chapter 12 and he's using this old covenant terminology to illustrate a new covenant truth. I told you a couple weeks ago that sacrifice under the old covenant is different than sacrifice now that Jesus has come and changed everything. In your notes there, I've listed a couple of these differences. Under the old covenant, the sacrifices were done out of a sense of obligation. Under the new covenant, they are done out of an attitude of worship. Under the old covenant, they were done so that God will so that God will bless me, so that God will favor me, so that God will accept me. Under the new covenant, it's because Jesus has. Because of what Jesus has done, I can live my life as an act of worship to him. Old covenant truth, so that God will, I now have to. New covenant truth, because Jesus has, I now can. Completely different attitude and perspective between those two truths. Last week I told you that we would look at these four words that Paul uses to define true worship. And then we looked at the first one, which is our body. And we said that it is not our bodily looks, but it's our bodily actions. Today we're going to look at the other three, living, holy, and acceptable. And as we do, you'll see how they support everything that I just said. So the second word that Paul uses to divine true worship is living. And this just reinforces the fact that God is not after our bodily looks. That's not what's important to him. It's what we are doing with our bodies. And it is somewhat ironic and telling to me for Paul to use the word living 
in relation to the word sacrifice. Because up to this point, people had always associated sacrifice with death. You had to lay an animal on the altar where it was killed. New covenant sacrifice on our end doesn't have anything to do with death because Jesus took care of the death part on the cross. His death provided for us life, the life that we can now live in worship to God. It's also interesting for him to use the word living because I think we often tend to think that the ultimate act of worship to God would be for us to die for him. We hold martyrs in high esteem, and rightly so. And I've heard many Christians talk a big game about what would happen if they had the opportunity to become a martyr. There are many of us in this room who I'm sure would not hesitate for a second if following Jesus required our death. And with the way things are going on in our country today, and especially for Christians There's been a lot of talk lately about that becoming a reality here in our lifetime, having to denounce Jesus or die. And there are many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in many places all over this world who that is a reality for them, a reality that they face every day. And I believe it is important for us to be praying for them every day as they face that. And if that does happen to come here, I would like to think that every one of us in here would be willing to face that and that we wouldn't flinch in the face of being threatened with death. I hope that all of us would be willing to die for our faith because I pray that Jesus is worth that to you. But do you know what I believe that God would want more than for us to be willing to die for him? It's the next point. As much as God would want us to be willing to die for him, he would much rather that we live for him. What makes me say that? Well, Romans 12, 1, for one thing, Paul doesn't say that God wants a dead sacrifice. He says he wants a living sacrifice. As those who are saved by grace, we are God's representatives here on earth. We were saved so that we would then go announce the arrival of the king and then demonstrate how his kingdom operates on this earth. We carry the very presence of Jesus himself with us everywhere we go. And so therefore, you and I have been anointed to bring good news to the afflicted, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captive and freedom to prisoners. That's what we were saved for. That's what we are to do. You can't do that if you're dead. And so as much as God would want us to be willing to die for him, I believe that he would much rather us live for him. And the fact that you are living right now is proof of that well enough. Because if God wanted you dead, believe me, he could take you out just like that. The only reason that you have air in your lungs right now is because of God's grace and his mercy in your life. And he is allowing you to breathe his air because he wants to use you for his glory. True worship involves living. And then Paul uses the word holiness. True worship involves He uses the word holiness. 
True worship involves holiness. Gosh, tongue-tied. Now, holy really has two meanings in the Bible. The most accurate definition is something that has been set apart, reserved for a specific use. But it's also taken to mean undefiled, clean, and perfect. Both of these definitions apply to the word holy in Romans 12.1. For the first one, we worship God by living for his purpose alone. Not for our purposes, not for someone else's purposes, but for God's purpose for us in this world. And so under holiness in your notes, it means that we are devoted to him for his use. The second meaning is a little more difficult for us because there is no way for us to undefile ourselves. There's no way that we can in our own effort become undefiled. We are not perfect and clean. We are sinful and dirty. The only way for us to have any hope of being holy is only if God would make us holy himself. The good news is that is exactly what happens when we put our trust in Jesus for salvation. The great exchange happens. He gets our sin, our dirt, our guilt, our shame, and we get his holiness. The second meaning under holiness in your notes is undefiled, which is what we are in Christ. In Christ, we are deemed to be undefiled, no matter how long you may have been rolling in the mud and the filth. There is no sin too great for God's grace, mercy, and forgiveness. In him, you are undefiled. Being in Christ means being in his holiness. And so the next point, we are holy in God's eyes only because of the holiness of Jesus. It's not our holiness, it's his. And we are given that as a free gift of his grace. Now that does not mean that we can now go live however we want to because we will always be holy in God's eyes. What God wants is for our actions to line up with our identity, to line up with who we have been made. God wants us to see ourselves the way that he sees us in Christ because our actions will always line up with our identity. Next point, what we believe about ourselves is reflected in how we live. I mean, this happens. You can see this with everyone. I mean, what we believe about ourselves, whatever our identity is, that's going to be played out in what we do. We're going to reflect that in how we live. You know, it's generally pretty easy to identify those who think very low of themselves. They tend to live somewhat destructive lifestyles. Self-loathing is evident in loathsome behavior. It seems that they're so disgusted with themselves that they try to destroy the very thing that they hate, whether it's through drugs or alcohol or whatever. You know, you see this pretty often in those who have been abused. The lie that they believe because of their abuse is that they are worthless, dirty, not worth of being respected or protected because they weren't respected or protected. They were abused. Gosh, I hate Satan. And the way he uses traumatic events like that to just shout 
his stinking lies over and over and over again in somebody's ear. I'm telling you, the only way for someone like that to change their behavior is first to have their heart changed by the power of Jesus Christ. And then for them to be able to see themselves for who they are in Jesus. If that's any of you in here this morning and you've been listening to and falling for those lies of Satan who tells you that you are anything other than what Jesus says you are, please I'm begging you to listen, believe the word, listen to your father singing over you and what he says of you, not what the world says of you, not what that person who abused you says of you, but what your father, what Jesus says of you. It has nothing to do with what happened in your past. It has everything to do with what Jesus has done. His grace is big enough for your past. His grace can handle that traumatic event. The only way for us to be able to really live a holy lifestyle is to believe that we are holy in Jesus. It is to see yourself the way that God sees you through him. That is why I say that we cannot ever get away from the gospel. This is why we need to keep preaching it to each other and to ourselves over and over and over again until it finally sinks in when we actually start believing this stuff. And then finally, Paul says that true worship involves a living and holy sacrifice that is acceptable to God. Now, do these words add anything to the word holy? I mean, if we are worshiping God by living holy lives with our body, wouldn't that automatically be acceptable to him? What these words add is God. It makes God explicit. They remind us that the reason why holiness matters is because of God. They remind us that all of these words that describe what worship is and at the very center of it all is God. He is the object of our worship. And so I guess the question could be asked, is it possible to live a holy lifestyle that is not acceptable to God? And is it possible to live a holy lifestyle for anyone other than God? I believe the answer to both of them is yes. Let's look at the first one. How can we live a holy lifestyle in a way that is not acceptable to God? Well... First of all, the very way that I talked about at the beginning. It's approaching your relationship with God and what you do for him from an old covenant mindset. So when we do it just from, selfish, from a sense of obligation rather than an attitude of worship. Like I said before, God doesn't want your begrudging obedience. He wants your worship. A couple of weeks ago I quoted 2 Corinthians 9-7. Where Paul says, each one must do as he is purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. A cheerful giver, not an obligated, not a begrudging giver. Peter tells the elders, shepherd the flock among you, not under compulsion, but voluntarily with eagerness. These verses tell us that God loves it when we do because we want to. Not just because we have to. 
And the only way we'll be able to live that way is when we get to a place with God where we actually enjoy Him. Tell you what, enjoying God is something that you don't hear very much. So I promise you now, I pretty much grew up in church my whole life, and I cannot remember one time anybody saying the phrase, enjoying God. God just wasn't painted as someone who you could really enjoy. But think about it. You think Jesus enjoyed the Father? Very much so. When he was here, he was demonstrating the kind of relationship with the Father that he wanted us to have with him. And then he went to the cross to make that possible. God wants us to find a place for him, with him, where we actually enjoy him. If we only see God as some angry being who is always watching for when we mess up, then we will never be able to live life as a want to for God. It will always be as a have to, and we will always be nagged with the thought, I wonder if I've done enough. And then the second question, is it possible to live a holy lifestyle for someone other than God? You bet it is. I can't tell you how many times as a youth pastor I met so many young men who normally lived these wild lifestyles who all of a sudden brought their behavior under control and started coming to church. It wasn't because of God. It was because of the pretty little thing that they were after. And I would sit down with these guys and I would talk to them and say, Hey, I noticed, man, there's a lot of change going on in your life right now. You tell me what that's all about. Oh, it's all God. Man, I just decided it's time for me to start living for God. I say, It's not so your girlfriend will like you. No, no, I swear. I say, Well, good, because God wants you for you, He wants you to live for Him. And I said, So I hope that's it, man. God wants your heart. More than you want your girlfriend's heart. And I'd say, look, I I hope this is the case. Because what if your girlfriend dumps you? You still going to live for him like this? Are you still going to be coming to church? Oh, yes, sir, I promise I will. But every time, as soon as that girl dumped him, I would never see him again. (laughs) I tell you, that's definitely not limited to teenagers. How many men have tried to get their act together and come to church because their wife gave them an ultimatum? You start going to church or else. There could be some of you in here right now for that very reason. And if so, I want you to hear me. I admire you for doing whatever it takes for you to keep your marriage together. But God wants you. God wants you. And earning brownie points with your wife has absolutely no bearing on your relationship with God. God wants you to know him in a way where your changed behavior is just a natural result of your joy in him. Everything that you have been trying to pursue in order to find joy in your life, I know that you're discovering 
time after time that it's just not working out. And so now you're stuck in the cul-de-sac of stupidity where we believe more of what doesn't work just might work. It won't. The only way you're ever going to find joy is in a relationship with Jesus from you turning from your sin and turning to him. And here's something else we should all understand. Your marriage relationship is only going to be as strong as your God relationship. And if your relationship with God is broken, your marriage will never be fully fixed. Never. And then there are those who try to live holy lifestyles not for God but for them because they want everybody else to think so well of them. They want them to think that they've got it all together. These are the ones that are really trying to hide something behind their wall of good behavior and holiness, trying to hide their junk because they don't want to be found out for what's really there. This is a lifestyle that God would find unacceptable. True worship is a lifestyle live for God, not live for your husband, not live for your wife or your boyfriend or girlfriend, not live so because of what others might think of you. It is for God alone. And so this is how Paul defines true worship. It's not just about singing loud and raising your hands. It's about the way that you live your life and where that motivation to do so comes from. But the main key to it all is Jesus Christ. And I'll bring this to a close by reminding us of how careful we should be to not get too self-absorbed with Romans 12.1. What do I mean by that? Well, even though this verse is talking about the way that we worship God, ultimately this verse is about Jesus. And we've got to be sure that we don't miss him in this. I'm telling you right now, he's all over these four words that we've been looking at. See, this verse describes Jesus to a T. His holiness. He was set apart. Devoted to be used strictly for God purposes of the redemption of mankind. He offered his body. As the ultimate sacrifice. He is the only man to ever have been deemed acceptable to God on his own. He is not some historical figure that we pay homage to once a week. He rose from death and is alive and well right now. Living. His presence by his spirit is right here in this room with us. The key to being able to live out Romans 12.1 is doing what Paul says in Colossians 3. First three verses. It will be up on the screen. It says, Therefore, if we have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not the things that are on the earth. Worshiping God with your body as a living and holy Acceptable sacrifice to God is what happens when our minds are set on Christ and where he is now, considering what he has done. And when we know, believe, understand, and trust in who he is and what he has done and who we are in him, this is how we will live. And so, church, we need to read about it. 
We need to study it. We need to keep singing songs about it. We need to be reminding ourselves every day over and over and over again because Jesus is the key to it all. Without him, you got nothing. read the story where there were these college professors and they were discussing religion and the the validity of it and all the different religions and how it's all a farce. And so they were in this big lecture hall with this giant chalkboard and they were listing all the different beliefs and elements of all these different religions. And they came to realize how they all pretty much were just the same thing. And they realized it was just all the same bunch of baloney. It was a university where one of their colleagues was C.S. Lewis. So they saw him walking down the hall and they said, Hey, Lewis, come in here for a second. We got something for you. And they looked at it and he said, Look at here. Here's all the religions. Now you tell us what makes Christianity different. And he looked at it and he goes, That's easy. He said, It's grace. They went, What? He said, Grace. Every one of these religions up here you've got is about what man needs to do for God. Christianity is about what God did for man to connect with him. He said, that's grace. There's your difference. And he walked out and they were left speechless. Grace will change you if you let it. Next week, we'll get into verse 2 and find out what it means to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And it is good stuff. So be sure to come back. Let's pray. God, your grace is amazing. And Lord, I pray that right now, Lord, the sound that I have made by proclaiming your truth would drown out the sound of Satan's lies that have been so clear in somebody's ears. The lie about who they are, the lie about what they are capable of, Lord, would you break through that? Holy Spirit, would you come and just allow the grace and mercy of God to bring those to repentance that have been living every other way they possibly can except for as an act of worship to you. Lord, I pray for those who have been trying to find joy in other things that this morning, that today would be the day that they surrender, they turn from all that futility, and they find their joy in you. Lord, I ask for just a spirit and an attitude of, of repentance just sweep across this room right now. Lord, do the heart surgery that you been longing to do in so many. God, I know that you have been looking forward to this day right here. February 21st, 2016. You've been looking forward to this date for a long time in somebody's life. Lord, I'm asking for a defining moment. 
So let your will be done right now. We submit ourselves to you. Give you glory, praise, honor that you so deserve. In Jesus' name, amen.